Hey, everybody. Good morning. Yeah. Uh, my name's Evan. It's good to see you. Good to be with you here at Park Hill. Uh, we'd love to help you feel uh, more connected. We'd love to get to know you. Back at the back, there's a connect table where you can, you know, uh, sign up for anything, communities or the weekly email or whatever. Just get connected or ask for prayer. We would love to pray for you. We pray for every name uh, that comes through every Sunday. Um, but my name's Evan. Uh, welcome. Uh, my wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church with a fantastic team. And we are walking through 1 Corinthians together as a church this year. And today we're finishing chapter 2. So I'm going to read chapter 2, starting in verse 6, all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, but, but first, remember, Paul is writing to Christians so in these first four chapters, he has this 30,000-foot argument that he's making. He's addressing division. The church is fighting. People are fighting in the church, and he's calling us to stay united around the gospel. In last week's text, uh, if you were here last Sunday, Paul was like, hey, hey, church, uh, when I first brought the gospel to you, I could have totally come with eloquence and persuasion and fine-sounding speech and flair. I've done that before in other places. Paul's like, don't get me wrong, I love a great public speak speaker, but for you, Corinthians, uh, he's like, I, I, since you are so caught up in celebrity and gifting and hype, I had to come to you in weakness and fear and simplicity so that your faith wouldn't rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God's spirit. Um, that's what we talked about last week. So before we kick off this teaching, I just want us to accept that invitation from Paul. Accept Paul's invitation to be a church that doesn't rally around mere human gifting. So we don't, we don't gather to consume songs and sermons. You can gather around your iPhone alone for that. We gather to host the presence of God. We need the presence of God. God wants to make his presence known through a community that is committed to word, table, and one another in prayer. And then we scatter throughout the city and do justice in his name. And, and, and reg this is regardless of the giftedness of a speaker or a musician or anyone else. The church, and the church is more than a two-hour gathering on Sunday, as we say around here. The church is also a family being transformed by the truth about Jesus, sharing life around a table. That's why we call this whole church to communities. Our goal is that 100% of you in the Sunday gathering would also be in communities. It's like, oh, I go to Park Hill Church. The follow-up question, oh, what community? That's how we think about ourselves. Uh, and, and Tanika nailed this last week with a clear call to fix our eyes on the God who became insignificant so that we might become loved and forgiven children of God simply by humbling ourselves and admitting our need for him. Which brings us to today, today's text, okay? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, all the way to 16. We're going to read the whole thing. It's wild. Um. Right after Paul begs us to trust God's power, and he begs us not to trust human wisdom, he says this, verse 6, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, 
a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for, quote, who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay, all clear. Totally got it? We get it. Let's, we can pray, we can go home. No, seriously, there's so much going on here. It's a wild text, so much. It raises a lot of questions. Like, why does Paul say, we speak a message of wisdom among the mature? Didn't he just get done saying last week that he doesn't rely on human wisdom? And like, what's this big mystery he's talking about? And what does he mean by wisdom of this age and rulers of this age? And then what's the Spirit of God have to do with all this? He, he mentions the Spirit of God a ton. And these are all great questions. And we're going to unpack these things. Because what Paul's saying here is, is uh, I know I, I say this a lot, this is another life-changing moment in Paul's writings. Where he gets to the heart of what it means to be in God. And so I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon, but I want to sum up Paul's main argument here so you know where we're headed. This is where we're going to land. And it's incredible. Okay, you ready? Simply put, Paul's main argument, he said, he's saying, only God's spirit has access to God's mind. Okay? And then he says, as followers of Jesus, we have God's spirit. Therefore, we have access to God's mind, at least in part. And so his main point is, so live like it. Live like it. Ground your life in how God thinks instead of how secular culture thinks. This is Paul's point from 30,000 feet. And the way he makes his point, he takes five million dollar words, okay? He takes five words and spins them on their head, and he redefines these five words in light of Jesus. So the ancient Greeks had a definition for these five words, and Paul wants us to rethink them in light of the gospel. And these words are the keys for understanding this passage. So here's the plan. We're going to walk through the text, and we're going to stop and unpack each of these five words as they show up in the text. And then we'll ask what it means for Park Hill Church today. And then we'll come to the waters of baptism. There's like six people over the day that have signed up to be baptized today, which, which is awesome. Um, so this is what we're going to do. How does that sound? Okay. So, so starting in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, 
He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom. Okay, right away, that's Paul's first million-dollar word there. Wisdom. For Greeks, wisdom meant sophistry, flashy rhetoric, eloquent entertainment. For Greeks, wisdom was what all the educated, influential people were after. Wisdom and success were very similar, success and status of the day. But for Paul, wisdom was simply the cross. Like true wisdom for Paul was a crucified king, a shamed God. It's this oxymoron that didn't make sense by worldly wisdom standards. This idea that God became weak and shameful in order to lift up the weakest and honor the shamed in the family of God forever. For Paul, this is true wisdom. It's the cross, the cross. Literally the opposite of worldly status. Okay, got it? It's one word down, four to go. Here's the next. Verse six, keep reading. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. There's this second million dollar word, and he redefines it, mature. For the Greeks... Mature was, was the word for the best and brightest disciples of the famous guys, the famous philosophers. They had these followers that would seek to be mature and, and to be the best and, and have all the status of following names and all of that. But for Paul, the ma- mature was people who are living in the way of Jesus. We know this because he talks about the immature in the next chapter. We're going to see this next week. The immature were those who were choosing not to live. They were Christians who were choosing not to obey Jesus. Uh, he, he actually calls these Christians mere infants in Jesus. Not ready for solid food. Surviving only on milk. Preferring only milk when God has a, a buffet of blessing in him. Because they weren't willing to do what Jesus says and to practice his way. So for Paul, maturity is living in humble obedience to the way of Jesus with your whole life in community. So that's the second word. And then the third word is in the rest of this verse. Um, He says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So this is more of a term. It's this idea of ages. It comes straight out of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is your Old Testament. If you have a Bible in your hand, the first chunk is the Hebrew Scriptures that Paul studied, which is amazing. We have the Bible Jesus and Paul studied, and it's called the Old Testament. And all through that Old Testament, you see this motif, the present age, the age to come. This is how the world of the Bible thought about history. We, right now, we have uh, B.C. and A.D., right? Uh, They didn't have B.C. and A.D. That was invented later by, like, Romans. Uh, But they had this, this present age and the age to come. And this idea is central to what Paul is doing all through 1 Corinthians. Um, The idea was this present age is the fallen world. It's out of step with the Creator's good desires for creation. So the present age is evil. And because of sin and Satan and death, things are not the way they're supposed to be in the present age. And then there's the age to come. 
the time when Messiah comes and brings the healing kingdom of Yahweh to the whole world and all oppression and all injustice and all sex trafficking and all pride and everything that is wicked gets undone and destroyed forever and all God's people are in perfect relationship with each other and with creation and with God. So these are the two ages and between these two, right where that slash is, is what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. The prophets called it the day of the Lord, and it was this moment when Yahweh, the creator himself, would step into space-time and switch everything over from the present age to the age to come. They were counting on this. They were longing for this, and God would reign in peace and shalom forever with his people. Are we tracking? Does that make sense? Good. So here's the problem. When Jesus, the Messiah, came, there was still evil. Is there still evil in the world? So yeah, so on the surface, it didn't look like Jesus was Messiah, after all. But according to the scriptures, how many times does Jesus come? Twice. Jesus comes twice. Right, he came once as Jesus of Nazareth, the first century, you know, humble in a manger, suffer, die on a cross, and to make us right with God through his cross and resurrection. And, and the... The big million-dollar word here is he came his first time to inaugurate the kingdom, to start setting things in motion, the kingdom of God. He inaugurated the kingdom of God, which is another way of saying the age to come was inaugurated. And Jesus will come again in the future, not as a lowly in a manger peasant rabbi, but as what the New Testament authors call the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, and that's the second coming that all Christians are anticipating. Jesus will consummate. The first word is inaugurate, where he starts setting things in motion. And the second word in theology is he will come to consummate the kingdom of God, to bring everything into its fulfillment. And the present evil age will be done, 100% gone. Does that make sense? So if not, if you still have questions, here's a cool little Venn diagram Dr. Matthew Ruffet made, which uh, I think is great. Jake helped put the line art on it. So here is the present age is the first circle. Jesus' first coming inaugurated the age to come. The second circle begins with Jesus' first coming, and the present age ends at Jesus' second coming. Where are we? We're currently in this messy middle where there's an overlap. The present age and age to come, they're both happening all around us, and they're both happening inside you and inside me. In theology, this is called the now and not yet. How many of you have heard that term, the now and not yet? We live in that overlap between Jesus' two arrivals. So is the kingdom of God a reality now? Is the kingdom here? Yes, God is healing and he's ruling and reigning on the earth through the lives of God's spirit-filled people. And is the kingdom of God a not-yet reality? Yes, because there's plenty of suffering and we pray for people to be healed and it doesn't work and they die. Because Jesus isn't here yet. Both are happening in this messy middle. And here's the point. For these new Christians in Corinth... They just thought of the present age and age to come as a, as a timeline where it's just all going to click over. Uh, but what Paul is saying is earth-shaking, that in Jesus, 
God has begun pulling the age to come from the future into now through the church. Earth-shaking for them. Jesus is pulling the age to come into the now in the lives of God's people. One of the main points in Paul in this letter is the healing power of God's future kingdom is breaking into the world through you and me as we're together in community practicing Jesus' way, as we live toward maturity in Christ, confessing sin in community, submitting to the scriptures, praying faithfully. This is why we pray, and we put prayer where it belongs in the church, and, and loving our city well. God is pulling his future kingdom into the present through us. This is how Paul sees history. This is why Paul can say in verse 6, the rulers of this age are coming to nothing. (laughs) They're diminishing as God's kingdom is taking ground through the church. God's pushing his kingdom forward through you. So let's keep reading. So from verse 7, he says, no, we declare God's wisdom. See, verse 7, a mystery, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So there's Paul's fourth million-dollar word. It's mystery. For the Greeks, mystery was this idea of secret cultic knowledge for privileged, super-spiritual groups. But for Paul, mystery was simply something once hidden and hard to see, but now brought to light through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The idea was, yeah, we know God's going to step in and save, but we don't quite know how. It's somewhat cloudy, and it's hard to foresee. And guess what? This was always part of the plan. God always intended to shock the world by his coming in an unexpected way. And he did so by coming in the humble person of Jesus of Nazareth and dying a shameful death that liberators don't get executed. Liberators liberate. But this liberator was executed. And and then he was resurrected to be the first raised dead person of the age to come where all the dead will eventually be raised. Absolutely shocking. And this mystery is no longer a mystery, Paul's saying. It's an open secret now. Secular culture is incompatible with this mystery. This is why he says what he says. Secular culture, rulers of this age, do not understand it. The most powerful people never expected it. And for 2,000 years, God's been revealing it to those who humble themselves through the church and to those who humble themselves and admit their need of forgiveness and healing. God has come to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the greatest story we could ever come up with, and it was a mystery, and now it's open secret that's transforming the world through people practicing the way of Jesus together. And yes, the hard news, the hard news is that Paul is drawing a sharp line, a dividing line, between the way of secularism and the way of Jesus here. He's saying the same secular world that killed Jesus is the same secular world that will oppose the way of Jesus through the church. And this shouldn't surprise Jesus followers, he's saying. Secular ideas and, uh, about money and, or marriage, secular ideas about marriage and gender or freedom or influence or any of the other stuff Paul is going to address in this letter 
Secular ideology will always be opposed to the way of Jesus. Because the secular world, in Paul's, in Paul's words, they are coming to nothing. They are vanishing forever. Meanwhile, we are the people of the age to come. As we follow Jesus together in humility and call others, anyone and everyone is welcome to be invited into this call. Call others into the, following Jesus here and now. We, we, are the, we are singing a new melody. We're living out a new storyline. God's kingdom of healing is rushing into the world through us. This is the mystery that's being revealed. This is the secret. It's not a secret anymore. It's open. Anytime the gospel is preached, it's open. It's no longer a mystery. Paul says it this way in the next verse. He says, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So that, that verse Paul's quoting is from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 64, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Old Testament. It's this passage all about Isaiah's longing and Israel's longing. God, would you just step in? We're in exile. We're not where we're supposed to be. Things are not the way they're supposed to go. Can you step in and fix it? Can you heal your people? Make everything sad come untrue again. And be with us, God. He's longing, and they were dying for God to do something insane and spark a renewal. Here's actually the whole quote from Isaiah. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down. Make your name known to your enemies. Cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we didn't expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. And here it is. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And Paul points to that text in 1 Corinthians and he says, hey guys, remember that? Remember Isaiah's longing for God to step in and do something insane that no human mind ever expected or could have known? Well, guess what? Now you know. It's Christ crucified. It's Christ risen. Now you can be united with the death and resurrection of Jesus and receive healing and forgiveness and power. Now you can experience the transforming power of the cross in your life. You can receive forgiveness, complete forgiveness and acceptance. And you can take up your crosses of suffering and have hope as you follow Jesus with his family. No human mind ever imagined this, but now God's revealed it. God's revealed it through us to the world and he's revealing it to us. And and then Paul doesn't just stop there. He could have just said, hey, isn't God amazing for showing us this? Isn't he great? And he could have just stopped there, but he presses further. He wants us to know how God is revealing this, what it looks like from God's perspective, how God is revealing this, and how God is opening his heart. He says it in verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. And this brings us to the fifth and final word for today. 
spirit or spiritual. Same root word in Greek, just like it's the same root word in English. And we're going to be spending a lot of time this month and later on this year unpacking the idea of spiritual. What comes to your mind when you think of being a spiritual person? It's very similar in Greece. In ancient Greece, spiritual basically just meant like immaterial and not physical. And that's a lot like what people mean by spiritual today. In, in today's culture, a spiritual person can be from any faith or no faith. Like famous atheist Sam Harris, who's brilliant, um, he, con- he considers himself to be a spiritual atheist. He's trying to rehabilitate the term spirituality because he uses meditation and psychedelics for neural transformation and all of that. And all of that is considered spiritual in today's culture. Um, but for Paul, it's really simple. Spiritual means animated by the Spirit of God. It means you're made right with God by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you're united with God right now by the Spirit of God inside you. So to be spiritual, it doesn't mean you have these crazy private mystical experiences, although maybe you do. But here in the New Testament, to be spiritual simply means God lives in you, and you walk in response to his presence in your life. So, yeah, so if you're new to Jesus, new to like Spirit, Holy Spirit, like like Holy Ghost is like the old King James version, it couldn't get, as if this all couldn't get weirder, thanks King James, made it even weirder with ghost. Um, so So if you're new to Jesus or the Bible or all this talk about the Holy Spirit, Uh, Or if you're not a Christian, like, welcome. So glad you're here exploring these things. Nothing more important. Central to the gospel story is the idea that there's one God. He's the creator. God made everything. We don't all agree on how long ago he made everything or how he actually brought everything to where it is today. But we all agree as Christians, that God created. Um, And this God expresses himself in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if that confuses you, one God, three persons, if that confuses you, welcome to 2,000 years of church history. That's That's the way it is. The point is, God's Spirit is not some force, like Star Wars, or some, he's not just some sterile doctrine, like the doctrine of the Spirit is as far as we go, or whatever. Um, No, the Holy Spirit is a person. Highly relational person. Highly emotional person. He's the person who reveals God's mind to you through prayer and scripture and community in the life of the church. And he connects us, the Spirit connects us to God in loving relationship. And he actually animates our lives as followers of Jesus. Which brings us to Paul's main argument that I mentioned at the beginning. Here it is. He says, verse 10, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In other words, who knows who you are thinking right now the best? Of all the humans? You. Right. Good. That's not a trick question. You know your own thoughts better than other humans do. And, and Paul's saying it's the same thing with God. Who knows God's thoughts the best? 
Just God's spirit. God's insides know God's insides the best. And it's just like any person. And God is no different. And then he says, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we've received isn't the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that we may understand what God has freely given us. As followers of Jesus, you have the inside of God, the Spirit of God inside you, which gives you unique access, at least in part, to God's very thoughts. This is the work of a person in your life. The Holy Spirit is making this possible for you. Right now, and tonight, and tomorrow morning, in your interactions with your family, and your community, and when you're alone, and when you're with your employer, the Holy Spirit in the life of the Jesus follower has poured out the thoughts of God into your life. This is a fact. And so what Paul is saying is since this is a fact, live like it. That's the whole point of this, this passage. The Corinthians were not living the fact. He's like, stop grounding your behavior in secular values. Ground your life in the way God thinks. You already have access to his thinking. You know where to find it. You know how to live in community. You know where the scriptures are. The fact of the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. So live the way of the cross. This is the passage. And the final verse of the passage is one of the most powerful moments in all of Paul's letters. He quotes Isaiah again, and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? That question comes from Isaiah 40, where Isaiah's like, God has done so much to save his people. If you read Isaiah 40, God looks really good. And he's done so much to save his people, and he holds everything in the hollow of his hand. And, and Isaiah steps back and says, who has known the mind? And that word mind in Isaiah 40 is ruach, which is spirit. Who has known the spirit of God so as to teach God? And Paul's like, we do. That's us now. This is the privilege of being the children of God, the church of Jesus, the body of Christ. The body of Christ has a mind. And he is the person, the spirit of God. My gosh, Paul's like, we have the mind of Messiah, of Christ, of God. Paul's like, the, the, the ancient prophets dreamed of this, and you have it. And you are ignoring him. Because you're so influenced by secular thinking, he's saying, because you're being driven by cultural values and your own selfish impulses and popular ideology, because of this, you are silencing the voice of the Spirit of God in your life. You have the Spirit, and you are ignoring him. Remember, he's writing to Christians who are resisting the authority of Jesus and dividing over non-essential issues, and he's going to get into a long list of all kinds of things that we still have trouble with today. And he's like, you guys, why on earth are you looking to what he calls the world for how to think about marriage and gender and division and sexuality and money and status? Come on, family, not in this house. Remember who you are. And Park Hill, the spirit is here. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the mind of Christ. It's a fact. It's not a promise, like if you live well enough, then you'll have the mind of Christ. The fact is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the mind of Christ. The command is, so live like it. He's here, and he's ready and willing to empower you to live like it and to break the power of addictions and bitterness and habitual lying and selfish patterns in our life. The Holy Spirit is fully present right here in the room, right here in the people of God in 177, decay whatever street this is, and he's, he's right here. And he's ready to reveal the mind of God. What does that mean? It means the, the Holy Spirit wants to ground your sense of self-worth in the Father's love for you, not in the approval of humans. He wants, to convince you, he wants to convince you in your heart that your true identity as loved, accepted, and empowered son or daughter is, is the reality that he has spoken over you in this house. And he wants to remind you of what Jesus has done for you so you can freely and joyfully repent. Peter talks about repentance as that which brings refreshment. Repent to be refreshed, he says, be back in the presence of God again. The Spirit wants to remind you that repentance, turning from sin, is actually the most refreshing thing you can do. And receive full forgiveness and cleansing because Jesus died and rose for you. The Holy Spirit wants to reveal the, the mind of God to us. And question for all of us today, are you willing to walk in the Spirit? Are you willing to live in step with the Holy Spirit and humbly obey his voice in your community? Whatever the cost, whatever that means and looks like for you. So as we come to the waters of baptism now, I wanna really just highlight the gravity of what Paul is saying. You need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. And we can like nod and agree, but the problem for us is the way so many of us, including myself, underemphasize and even willfully ignore the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Francis Chan famously called the Holy Spirit the forgotten God. I think that's spot on. There's a weird irony that the expression of God we are closest to, the Spirit, is often the one we're most ignorant of. Like, we love Jesus, right? He's like the tangible face of God. He did the good things that God does. We see Jesus. He loved the poor. He defended the weak, all of that. We love Jesus, and we love the Father. He calls us loved. We love the Father. He's, you know, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That's great. We even love the Bible, we study it like crazy around here. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of in-depth Bible study, central to following Jesus. I cannot wait uh, for a couple of the teachers that are coming through uh, Park Hill later this month. Uh, some, I'm very excited. I'm going to announce it next week. But we're all about teaching and studying the scriptures. Um, but when do we ever talk about loving the Holy Spirit? Just think that through. I'm not saying we should all change our language or whatever. I'm just trying to highlight how much we ignore the person. God, the Holy Spirit, 
in our lives, the expression of the Trinity that is the closest. Technically, Jesus isn't here. Jesus is a human who is also God, who is in heaven in the presence of the Father, waiting to return. Jesus is not here, technically, theologically. The Spirit of God is here. Jesus said that's actually better while he's away. Do we believe this? The Holy Spirit is our connection to the life of God. And Paul's whole line of thinking in 1 Corinthians 2 is really rooted in Jesus' teaching about the Spirit, where he says, Abide in the vine. Remain in my love. Walk in step with the Holy Spirit, the helper sent by Jesus to teach us the mind of God. How? Through community, through commitment to reading scripture and humbly praying with your community and all of that and listening when you're listening to the Holy Spirit's voice when you're in sin and responding in obedience. All of this, yes, is dialoguing with the Spirit. Are you willing to dialogue with the Spirit and submit to his authority in your life? Am I willing? Maybe this is new and you haven't really thought through what it looks like to respond to the Spirit in your day-to-day. I remember a pastor telling me when I was young, I think it's good advice. He's like, the Holy Spirit's a person. Like any person, he wants relationship. And like any relational person, he can be heartbroken. Holy Spirit can be heartbroken. Paul says, do not grieve the Spirit. So if you haven't heard from the Spirit in a while, He told me, if you haven't heard from the Spirit in a while, think back to the last thing he did tell you. What did you do? How did you respond? Maybe it's time to revisit, respond, and obey now. Maybe it's been a few years. Or maybe all of this is new, and you're just now realizing that Jesus may very well be the Lord of the universe, and we invite you, if that's you, you are, the, the red carpet is rolled out all the way to the waters of baptism for you. We would love to shepherd you, pastor you, into what it means to be baptized today. To my left and your right, there will be people right there ready to talk to you about being baptized and, and step into life in the Spirit. Life in relationship with the Father, Son, Spirit. So can we be, Park Hill, can we be a church that is growing in maturity, that is growing in willingness to respond and remain in the vine, in community and in gatherings, in our, when we're alone or when we're with 500 people? Live in step with the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, that's the call. And I'm going to pray. We're going to celebrate communion first and then baptisms.